Good morning, church. Good morning. Happy Memorial Day to y'all. I'd like to open us with a word of prayer. God, we are amazed that we have an audience with you. God, we are amazed that we're not leaving you a voicemail right now. We're not waving and trying to get your attention. But we are speaking to you, God, right now. God, we gathered this morning as a church, as a body of believers. Uh, we welcome those who don't believe to hear the good news uh, of who you are and who you've revealed yourself to be in Jesus. All are welcome here, all are loved here, God, because you welcomed us and you loved us and you sent your only son to die for us. And so that message burns in our bones. We want to tell everybody about the new life we have in you. God, I pray that you would speak through me this morning. Uh, you would give me good words of encouragement uh, so that we may all go into this week on fire for you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we are in a series on the book of Hebrews. So last week we talked about how Jesus fulfills a prophetic role. Really, in the Old Testament, like we talked about, there's prophets and there's priests and there's kings. And the book of Hebrews shows how Jesus fills all three roles. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. So last week we talked about how Jesus fulfills the prophet role. This week we're going to be talking about how Jesus fills the priest role. And so I was reading a book this week and I read a story in it that I thought had a lot of glaring similarities to our text for today. And before we read it, I'm going to go ahead and tell you this story and then we can look at our text. But the story that I read was about an old Russian czar. Now this old Russian czar had this general that he really loved and cared about. But unfortunately, his general was on his deathbed from wounds that he had sustained. And so this Russian czar promised this general, when you die, I'm going to look after your son for you. And so sure enough, sadly, the general died. But thankfully, the czar kept his word. He took this general's son as his foster son. He gave him an education. He gave him a good job. Eventually, this son was inserted into the army. But what the czar didn't know was that this foster son had a gambling addiction. And so sadly, it got to the point that this foster son was even embezzling from his army regiment in order to pay off his gambling debts. And so one night, the uh, foster son was sitting at a table. Uh, he had his alcohol next to him and he had his revolver next to him and he was looking at the books and he realized it's only a matter of time before the accountants find out. They find out what I've done. And so he decided the only way out is this revolver. And so he drank some more to strengthen his resolve to end his life. Uh, but the drink was so potent that eventually he passed out. He passed out with the revolver on his right, the drink on his left, the books in front of him on the table. And as he usually did, the Russian czar walked about the camp at night dressed as a soldier. He would pretend to be a soldier 
walk around to find out the morale of the people. And so eventually he passed by his foster son laying there. He looked at the book. He saw all the debt that needed to be paid. And he realized what his foster son was about to do. So the next morning, this foster son woke up. And when he woke up, he was surprised to see that his revolver was gone. But there was a note next to his hand. And the note was a promissory note. And it said, I, the czar, hereby agree to pay the difference that's shown in these books. I will pay all the debts shown in this book. The czar saw his son's sin. He saw it down to the deepest parts. He saw the entire record of it. And he said, for my own money, I will pay for it. So let's look at our passage for today. Our passage for today is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. So once again, Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Our text says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we're going to go through each one of these verses I believe that these verses show us three things about Jesus. Jesus speaks for us, Jesus sympathizes with us, and Jesus welcomes us. So the first one is Jesus speaks for us. And let's read verse 14 again. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So he says we have a great high priest in Jesus. Well, the next question is, okay, what is a priest? Well, According to the Levitical law, according to the law that Moses brought in from God, the Levites were to be the priest for Israel. Now, the priests made sacrifices in the temple on behalf of themselves and on behalf of the people for the sins that they committed that they knew about and even the sins that they committed in ignorance. That was their role. The Levites were the priests and the priests made the sacrifices for the people, but not all priests are created equal because some priests are just regular priests, but each year there's one high priest that will go into the inner sanctuary of the temple. And this high priest will go into the inner sanctuary of the temple and make a blood sacrifice for the people. And so our text says that Jesus, he isn't just a priest, he is a high priest. And he isn't just a high priest, he is the great high priest. And so it says something very interesting. It says, our great high priest passed through the heavens. Now, there's two different ways to look at the heavens when you read the Bible. For one, they didn't have pictures of outer space like we do. When they said the heavens, they meant the heavens, the sky, all that's up above us. But they also meant heaven as in God's dimension, where God lives in all the cosmos, that's heaven. So as you're reading the Bible, keep that in mind. The heavens can mean the skies, but it can also mean where God resides. 
And so I think it's interesting because I think it points to the last time we saw Jesus in the flesh in the Bible. What happened the last time we saw Jesus? Jesus was standing before the disciples and he ascended into the heavens. So Jesus ascended up into the heavens and that's the last time the disciples saw Jesus in the flesh. Of course, we know that Jesus appeared to the Apostle Paul in the flesh. But when they were all gathered together, Jesus commissioned them to go out into all the world, baptizing people, teaching them about me. He gave them a commission, and then he ascended up into heaven. So the author of Hebrews is saying, all the priests that you had under the old covenant, they had to go through the outer sanctuary, and then they had to go into the inner sanctuary, and then make a blood sacrifice. But we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And on our text last week, what did we say? It said, Jesus, after making purification for sins, ascended into heaven where he now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. What is that saying? Jesus sits at the right hand of God, which means Jesus has direct access to God. We know that Jesus is God, but what it's ultimately trying to say is that Jesus isn't just going into the temple and making sacrifices. Jesus made the sacrifice And now he has direct access with God. So who is a better priest? The one who is sitting at the right hand of God or the priest that is going once a year into the inner sanctuary of the temple? We know that it's much better to have a priest who has ascended into the heavens and who sits at the right hand of God. If you wouldn't mind turning with me to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. I think this will help us understand this more. Hebrews 9... Verses 11 through 15. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, like the temple, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons were the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, so if animals purify, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, How much will that purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And so, if the old priest, do you want to go back to the old priest who sacrificed unclean? You know, of course, some of these were clean, but they're still animals. But would you rather be in the old covenant where priests are constantly sacrificing animals? Or would you rather be in the new covenant that Jesus has given us by giving us his own blood? And not just anyone's blood, but the perfect life that he lived, God in the flesh sacrificing his blood. Isn't that a much greater sacrifice than the animals that were sacrificed in the Old Testament? And so I think this is very foreign to us, this idea of sacrifices. The thing is, I don't think we take sin seriously enough. I think we think that God could have just said, oh, uh, you're forgiven. I don't have to come down. I don't have to die on the cross. I don't have to make a sacrifice. You don't have to make sacrifices anymore. Just forget it. We, we wonder, why couldn't you just have done that, God? 
Well, think about the story that I just told you. Why couldn't the Russian czar just say, ah, forget about it, son, don't worry about it. There was a debt to be paid, wasn't there? But he paid it for his son. And when we sin, there is a debt to be paid. We've wronged God, we've wronged people. Every time you forgive, a death occurs, doesn't it? Have you ever forgiven somebody and thought, oh, that was easy? No, it always requires you to sacrifice, to give of yourself. And the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate way of paying that debt was when Jesus paid what we deserved on the cross. And so sacrifice shows the gravity. It shows how deep and dark our sin is. It shows that we just can't just brush it under the rug. But Jesus didn't ask us to keep making more sacrifices. He made that sacrifice for us. And so what do I mean when I say Jesus speaks for us? I think when we hear that, when we hear that Jesus is a great high priest who defends us, we have this image of God the Father wanting to punish us and God the Son, Jesus saying, no, don't punish them. But I don't think that's what this text is saying because remember, Jesus is God in the flesh. They both have the same will. They both want the same thing. It's not saying that God tries to convince, or Jesus tries to convince God constantly. It's saying that God came down and he died on the cross. And so what it means for Jesus to speak for us is it means his sacrifice on the cross speaks for us eternally. Now this is a little bit different than the old covenant because the old priest spoke Jesus' sacrifice speaks. You see the difference there? The old covenant, the priests in there, they would make sacrifices, and it spoke to God of their sorrow, their brokenness, what they'd done wrong. But then they repeated, and it just happened over and over. But in Jesus, it's once and for all. It's a sacrifice that speaks for eternity. It's in a prayer that God says an eternal yes to. So that's what it means by Jesus being our great high priest. And that's what I mean by Jesus speaking on our behalf. Jesus, as the risen Savior, the one who died on the cross, he saved us by his death on the cross. And he doesn't have to go back to the cross ever again because it's once and for all. And so verse 14 shows us that it's done, it's finished, like Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. But verse 15 shows us that Jesus sympathizes with us. Let's read that again. Verse 15 of chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Another thing to remember about priests is that they didn't just make sacrifices. Priests carried out a pastoral role in their community. So the priest taught the people. The priest counseled people. The priest sat with people who were in sorrow, who were hurting. That was the role of the priest, and we don't talk about that very much, but they did have that role in their community. And so imagine if you talked to your priest, they sacrificed animals for you, you told them what you're going through, and they said, I just, I totally can't relate to that at all. They had no pity on you at all. I mean, how could you ever learn from, how could you ever grow with a priest that had no sympathy for what you were going through. And sometimes I think that we think Jesus can't sympathize with us because at least the old priest 
knew what it was like to sin. But Jesus has never sinned. How can he know what we're going through? How can Jesus sympathize with us if he's never sinned before? But the thing is, we have it backwards. Because Jesus never sinned, he can empathize and sympathize with us more than anybody alive or in history. Jesus, because he never sinned, can do a better job of sympathizing with us than any pastor or priest out there. So what is sympathy? It's feeling pity for someone. It's feeling relation to someone. It's, it's being able to say, I know what you're going through. I've been there too. So can Jesus actually say that to us? Well, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 8, says something very interesting. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So Jesus didn't just waltz through life without any suffering, without any hardship at all. Jesus was tempted just like we are. It says that when he was in his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Doesn't that remind you of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He knows he's about to endure the most horrific torture, the most horrific death. According to their time, that was the most shameful death, stripped naked in front of everybody, laughed at, spit at, punched, and that wasn't even the worst part. The worst part was experiencing a separateness from God the Father on the cross. And Jesus, in anticipation of that, sweat drops of blood. He cried out with loud cries. He cried real tears. Has any of us ever been tempted that much? Think of Jesus in the wilderness, in the desert, after he was baptized He was fasting for 40 days in the wilderness. He was tempted face to face with Satan. Can any of us ever say that we've been tempted like that before? Nobody in here has ever been tempted to the extent that Jesus was tempted. But the difference is Jesus never sinned. Jesus never gave in. But all of us cannot say that. We have to admit we have sinned before. So why do I say that Jesus can sympathize with us more than anybody else who has sinned? Well, I want to read you a quote by C.S. Lewis that I think will really help us understand this. C.S. Lewis, in his famous book, Mere Christianity, he said, Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. So, of course, whenever we're tempted and then we just give in, we see part of the strength of temptation. But Jesus never gave in. He saw how strong it is. He saw what we were going through. We can never, ever say, Jesus... You don't understand what it's like to suffer. Jesus, you don't understand what it's like to be tempted. You don't understand what it's like for me to go through what I'm going through. We can't say that because Jesus is able to sympathize with us. We don't have a great high priest who's, able to, who's not able to sympathize with us. Jesus doesn't say, oh, I'm, 
no idea what you're going through. Jesus knows exactly what we're going through. There's nothing that we can suffer that Jesus can't relate to us in. We're not alone in our suffering. We're not alone in our temptations. It's important that we realize Jesus doesn't enjoy us being tempted. Jesus enjoys being with us in our temptations. Jesus enjoys helping us. Jesus wants to help us. And so I think it's important that Jesus didn't come to just show off that he could be obedient. We think Jesus came down to show, hey, I can do it. Why can't you do it? But no, Jesus came down to sympathize with us, to go through our sufferings with us, to go through our temptations with us, and to show that God is stronger than our temptations, that God doesn't ask us to do anything that he won't help us to do. And we know that not as an abstract idea, but we know that in flesh and blood because Jesus lived it out. But he didn't just live it out to crush us and say, hey, follow my example. He lived it out to say, I'm sending you the Spirit. The Spirit's going to guide you in truth. And the Spirit is going to help you as the Spirit helped me. Because Jesus didn't just wake up and just resist temptation. Jesus woke up early, went up to the mountain. He prayed. He practiced spiritual disciplines that we, we just expect to just be like Jesus. We say, what would Jesus do? But we don't ask, what spiritual disciplines did Jesus practice? Jesus prayed. Jesus asked for help from the Father and so Jesus isn't just giving us a crushing example. He's showing us that, it, number one, it's possible, but number two, I'm going to help you through all of it. So Jesus speaks for us. Jesus sympathizes with us too. But in verse 16, we see that Jesus welcomes us. So let's read verse 16 in chapter 4. It says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy, and find grace to help in time of need. So, I had a friend one time tell me, I believe that God can forgive sins. I just don't believe he can forgive my sins. You know, if Jesus knew what I'd done, he wouldn't be able to forgive it. What I've done is so bad that it's un forgivable. This person believed a lie. And the lie is that I'm a better sinner than Jesus is a savior. But actually the reverse is true. Jesus is a better savior than we are a sinner. You can't be a better sinner than Jesus is a savior. And yet we feel like for some reason it's a business transaction. I have to be good enough for Jesus to love me. I heard a story the other day about a woman who was struggling early on in her marriage. Her and her husband, they didn't always see eye to eye. It wasn't anything abusive or anything like that. It was just that they were real, realizing the realities of marriage. And so uh, she left for a little while, but she met someone who told her, to love with divine love. And divine love, he said, is like the sun. The sun shines on everybody. But we're so used to the love that says, I love you until you inconvenience me. I love you as long as it's comfortable for me to love you. So of course, when we sin against God, we think, oh, God's not going to love me anymore. 
I've lost this business deal with God that as long as I obey, he would love me. God doesn't say that. God says, I love you no matter what. No matter what, there's nothing you can do to make me stop loving you. There's no sin you can commit to make me stop loving you. There's no sin you can commit to make you lose what my son died on the cross for you to receive. And yet sometimes we think, oh, but, but God, I'm a, I'm a better sinner than you are a savior. But God says, no, I'm actually a better savior than you are a sinner. Think about what this verse says. It says, let us approach the throne of grace. What is God sitting on? He's sitting on a throne of grace. He's not just passing out grace like candy to people who deserve it. His very seat is grace, and he invites us to it. He doesn't say, ah, I don't want to forgive these people, but I guess I will. No, he wants to offer us mercy. Now, he won't force mercy on us. He gives us a choice. He says, you can come and accept this mercy. You can come and accept this grace, but I won't make you. You don't have to, but I want you to come. Think about what Jesus said in the book of Matthew. So in Matthew 23, verse 37, Jesus is calling out the religious leaders of his day. and He's calling out the city of Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Think about that. Jerusalem could have said, ah, I'm a better sinner than God as a savior. I've done things that God can't forgive me for. I, I killed the prophets. I stoned those that God sent to me. And what does Jesus say? He says, I still wanted to welcome you into my arms just as a hen wants to welcome her brood under her wings. I still wanted to offer you grace, but you were not willing so it's, sometimes we think it's God that won't offer us forgiveness, but really it's us that refuses to go and accept this forgiveness that God offers us through Jesus. And so why does the text say that let us walk then with confidence to the throne of grace? Doesn't that sound kind of cocky? Doesn't that sound kind of arrogant? How can we walk confidently to the throne of grace if we didn't do anything to deserve it? Well, that's the thing. If it was based on what we've done, there's no way we could walk to the throne of grace confidently. But that's not why we're walking to the throne of grace. We're walking to the throne of grace, not based on what we've done, but based on what Jesus did for us on the cross. And when we start to realize that what Jesus did on the sacrifice is, what Jesus sacrificed on the cross is actually real, when we stop thinking, ah, maybe Jesus died for my sins, but when we say, I'm confident I'm confident that Jesus died for my sins. I'm confident that God accepts that sacrifice on my behalf. And because of that, I don't have to be scared to go up to the throne of grace. I can confidently walk up to God and receive the grace that he really, really wants to give to me. Do you remember when Jesus died on the cross? What happened after he breathed his last breath? Well, Matthew 27 gives us the account that when Jesus surrendered his spirit, he died on the cross. He breathed his last breath. What happened in the temple? The temple is where they went to make sacrifices. 
But the veil that separated the inner sanctuary from the outer sanctuary was torn from top to bottom. What does that mean for us? It means that the old way of doing sacrifices is over. The temple has served its purpose. It's not like Jesus threw it away. He fulfilled the purpose of the temple. He now is the temple. He now is the priest. He now is the sacrifice. And so even when Jesus died on the cross, we were still receiving a message from God that you don't need these priests to make sacrifices for you anymore because Jesus has made the once and for all sacrifice for you. And it's such a relief, isn't it? Doesn't it just lighten your chest up a little bit to realize that I don't have to work anymore to be right with God. I don't have to work anymore. I don't have to make sacrifices anymore. It's, it's done. It's finished. Jesus already did it for me. Now, I want to obey. I want to live for God, but not so I can bend God's arm and get him to accept me, but because God has accepted me in Christ, because he died on the cross for me, because he laid his life down for me, now in my heart, I want to live for him. And you know what? You can, because Jesus is the great high priest, and he laid his life down for you so that you could live your life for him. And only when we get out of this mindset that I have to be the priest, I have to make the sacrifices, are we able to see that it's already finished. The great high priest has already entered the inner sanctuary and he prays an eternal prayer to God for us and God says an eternal yes to the Son for it. We were not brought into God's company. We were not brought into the inner sanctuary. We were not brought into the heavens. We were not brought into eternal life with the blood of heifers and goats and animals, but with the blood of the Son of God. And when you're thankful for what God has done for you in Jesus, then it enables you to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Because now they're not a means to God. Now they're a reaction to what God has done for you as the great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. Let's pray. God, we want to thank you for Jesus, the great high priest, God. If it wasn't for Jesus, we would not be able to have a right standing with you. But because our sins were nailed on the cross with Jesus, that means they died with Jesus, God. And because Jesus was raised from the dead, that means that we too raised from the dead. And so God, we want to thank you for that reality that we have in you. It's not just an abstract idea, but it's our reality. So I pray that today and every day we would rejoice and celebrate the good news that you are the great high priest and your sacrifice stands forever. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.